have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Thanks for listening to the third episode of this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11, brought to you by Safer World, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Looking back 20 years on at the impacts of 9-11 across the world, we will look at the conflicts that emerged in response, the legal and security reforms that changed people's lives and societies, the impacts on our culture and our politics. Episode 2 looked at the first invasion launched by the US in response to 9-11, the war in Afghanistan. This third episode looks at overreach in Iraq, that is, how the war on terror became connected to the push to topple Saddam Hussein and the consequences this unleashed in Iraq. So as we turn to Iraq, it's worth remembering how connected what happened in Iraq was to the war in Afghanistan. In November 2001, the US had a chance to kill or capture Osama bin Laden and Taliban leader Mullah Omar years before their eventual deaths. To do this, they would need to cut off the exits of al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters out of the Tora Bora mountains and into Pakistan. Both the CIA and a unit of Marines in Kandahar offered to deploy into the mountains. But their offers were turned down or ignored by General Franks, who was overseeing the Afghanistan invasion from the US military's Central Command, or CENTCOM, in Tampa, Florida. Although they were working 24-7 on Afghanistan, by November 2001, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had already handed Franks and CENTCOM another assignment that would end up diluting the US focus on Afghanistan for the years to come. The task was planning for a new war in Iraq. I am Delina Gojo. And I'm Larry Attri. Before we go on to how things went wrong in Iraq, we also need to be clear about how the Iraq war fits into the story of the consequences of 9-11. Yes, so for senior members of the George W. Bush administration, getting rid of Saddam was in some ways unfinished business from the first Bush administration. So they wanted to bring rogue regimes like that of Saddam in Iraq into line and they wanted to send a message that the US was strong enough to punish and to correct such rogue behavior. On the afternoon of September 11th itself, Rumsfeld in fact dictated to one of his aides, we've got to see somehow how we could bring Saddam Hussein into this. But this wasn't straightforward because even though Cheney and Wolfowitz pushed hard to get intelligence, which would link Saddam's Iraq to 9-11, there was hardly any evidence that would suggest a link. This lack of evidence meant that the case for war got a, quite a bit more complicated. The Bush administration used the atmosphere of palpable threat that emerged after 9-11 to hype the threat posed by Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. As President Bush put it in October 2002, Facing clear evidence of peril, we cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun, that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. It was 
this argument about weapons of mass destruction that would extend the US-led war on terror into Iraq. It wasn't that Saddam's Iraq had any clear link to Al-Qaeda. It was that at some point Saddam could use WMDs against the US or he could pass such weapons to a group like Al-Qaeda. So we talked in episode one about how the war on terror was defined as this struggle of good versus evil. And this was cemented by President Bush in his State of the Union speech on the 29th of January 2002. With the war on terror in full swing, he put Iran, Iraq and North Korea on notice. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. This public move to define regimes in the region in this way would have significant consequences in the war to come. After a final ultimatum demanding the departure of Saddam from Iraq on 17th March, Operation Iraqi Freedom began on 20th March 2003. Bush announced three objectives for the operation. To disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. A striking thing about the invasion was that it was intentionally made into a spectacle. The words that Jean Baudrillard uses are the simulation of a war. After cruising to what they thought at first was an easy victory, coalition troops in places like Karbala, Basra and Baghdad began toppling statues of Saddam in front of TV crews. But it was the toppling of a statue by Iraqis in Firdos Square on April 9th, less than three weeks after the invasion, that went viral. The US was making an example of Saddam and televising it for the world. All this had profound implications. It fueled the perception that the war had been won. It diverted attention from Iraq at precisely the moment that more attention was needed. Coalition leaders believed stabilizing Iraq would now be straightforward. They expected to be hailed as liberators by a compliant people. But mass looting soon broke out inside Iraq, an early glimpse of the chaos ahead. Rumsfeld shrugged this off. He said that the free people of Iraq might be a little untidy and make mistakes, but that they were now also free to live their lives and do wonderful things. But what followed wasn't wonderful for anyone involved. Reckoning with 9-11 Joining us to discuss how the war in Iraq played out in this episode is Emma Skye, director of Yale's International Leadership Centre and author of The Unravelling, High Hopes and Missed Opportunities in Iraq. She went to Iraq to support reconstruction in 2003 and from 2007 served as political advisor to General Adierno, the commander of US forces in Iraq. Emma, the initial US victory quickly unravelled into bitter insurgencies and sectarian violence. Can you explain some of the factors that led to this? So we should never have invaded Iraq in 2003. The invasion was based on the assumption that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, an assumption that proved to be untrue. And there was never a separate UN resolution authorizing the war. So the legitimacy of the invasion was disputed right from the get-go. Now, early on in the occupation, two major decisions were taken The first was debathification, and the second one was dissolving the Iraqi security forces. Now, these decisions had the impact of unintentionally collapsing the Iraqi state, because in Iraq, the Ba'ath Party and 
the administration were essentially one and the same. And so debathification didn't just remove those people who had committed horrible crimes against the Iraqi people. It went much deeper. And in many places, to be a doctor or to be a teacher, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party. So we were left with towns without doctors and teachers. And with Iraqi security forces, we had dropped flyers before the war, telling them not to fight us and that we would treat them with honor and dignity. And on the most part, they didn't fight us. They went home with their weapons. Iraq was always a heavily armed country and they waited to be recalled to barracks. But we never recalled them. Instead, we, instead we dismissed them from their jobs. So these people were angry, they were armed, and they were without income initially. And by dissolving the security forces, it also meant that the borders of Iraq were left open. So any people who opposed the US occupation of Iraq, opposed the, the project as such, could come in to the country. So there were foreign jihadis who turned up. There were then Iraqis who felt excluded from the new Iraq. So the ones we had debathified or the Iraqi military, who then formed armed groups to fight against us and to fight against the people that we had put in power. And you had ordinary everyday Iraqis who no longer felt safe had no one to protect them, so they formed their own neighborhood gangs. And so very, very quickly, in a country where people had a lot of weapons, you had all of these different groups, armed, angry, and vengeful. And at this time also, people started discovering mass graves. They would find hundreds of bodies in these graves that Saddam's forces had killed some decades previously and people were finding the bodies of their loved ones and this caused tremendous grief and people started taking revenge on each other and in the absence of any security forces in the absence of a state to provide security or adjudicate the country descended into civil war another factor that played into this was the holding of elections in Iraq. The elections were held relatively early in 2005. Those groups who had been formed in exile and had their own militias, which they brought back to Iraq, really had an advantage. So what the elections did was exacerbate the divisions in society and politicians using sectarianism to rally their base to vote for them. These Iraqi elites, many of whom had been in exile, many of whom were Islamists, many of whom had been in Iran, really pushed for the new state to be put on a, it's almost institutionalized sectarianism. And that permeated all the way down through institutions. And this is why the civil war ended up as a sectarian civil war. I want to focus a little now on violence against civilians um, as well. So we know now that as rebellions were mounting from Sunni insurgents, Al-Qaeda, Shia militias, the coalition had to fight hard or to face eviction. But of course, the intense violence left hundreds of thousands of Iraqis dead 
We don't know how many people in Iraq were killed during the whole war. You know, you could take a probably underassessment and say half a million within two years. The nature of the violence had changed considerably and the violence had become Iraqi on Iraqi. Now, this had started as, say, armed groups on armed groups. Al-Qaeda had been doing these horrific attacks against Shia civilians, trying to provoke a response. And the floodgates opened by about 2006. And then you had Shia militias who were supported by Iran carrying out ethnic cleansing and evictions of Sunni population. And that is when the majority of the violence took place. You can look at that from 2005, 2006, until we get to 2007, which is when the US surged extra troops in. So by that stage, the opinion of the occupiers, opinion of the US had changed because now the US was seen as the force that could stop Iraqis from killing each other. Yeah. I want to move now a little to what happened with Al-Qaeda in Iraq, even before the invasion, as the US was gearing up for war, up to 5,000 foreign jihadist fighters made their way into Iraq uh, to, to oppose the US specifically. And so rapidly after the invasion, Al-Qaeda went from barely existing to becoming a much more potent force. How and why do you think that happened? So after the invasion of Iraq, more foreign jihadis were able to come into the country. And Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who had been in Iraq prior to the invasion, was able to really operate within the chaos. So he was able to recruit from local Iraqis and foreigners who came in. He was seen as, you know, he was ruthless, he was charismatic, he had a vision. And of course, the irony was Saddam had been so against jihadis, and he was everything that Al-Qaeda hated, a dictator, secular. With the collapse of the state, it became a free-for-all in which groups such as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, as it became known, were able to flourish. I gather that Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, which had been put on notice by the axis of evil, sort of rhetoric coming out of the Bush regime was determined to support opposition to the US in in Iraq and had therefore both released jihadists from its own prisons and supported international jihadis to get Syrian papers and enter Iraq in order to join the Al-Qaeda cause. A lot of the foreign jihadis who came into Iraq came across the Syrian border and this was when Assad had full control of who came into the country and who crossed the borders. So you can think of the early years of the war, whether it was the Syrian secret services or other elements of the Syrian regime were facilitating and not preventing these foreign jihadis from entering Iraq through the Syrian border. By 2006, as you say, Iraq has really descended into chaos. And things like Al-Qaeda's bombing of the Golden Mosque in Samarra in February 2006 really sparked all-out sectarian civil war. At the peak of violence in 2006, 
there are as many as 140 attacks in Iraq by various armed groups every day. But as you say, the US and the coalition did find a way to fight back against al-Qaeda, against Shia militias and others, say from about mid-2006, and improve the security situation. So could you explain to us what they did to enable that? So by the end of 2006, everyone thought the country was lost. Every day, dead bodies would turn up in the streets and you could tell whether they were Sunni or Shia by whether you know, the head had been chopped off or whether, whether been, the head had been drilled. And it was horrific. There was no electricity. There was mass ethnic cleansing. And it really was a, a dreadful, dreadful situation. And most of President Bush's advisors urged him to leave Iraq, say the country is lost. And he went against their advice and decided to surge an extra 20,000 US troops into Iraq. Now his thinking was, if we left Iraq like that, it would be a terrible humiliation for the US military. The violence wouldn't just stay in Iraq, it would spread throughout the region and it would just be absolute disaster. And so he took the gamble to actually increase the forces. But the extra numbers are only just a part of the story of what happened after that, because this period known as the surge followed a very different strategy. And during the surge, he appointed General Petraeus, the strategic commander, and a new operational commander, General Odierno. And I served as General Odierno's political advisor. So our first task was to try and understand the nature of the violence and to really understand why Iraqis were using violence. And up to that moment, there'd been this sense, you know, we were the problem, we needed to get out. And everybody fighting was called sort of an anti-coalition force. We actually sat down and thought, look, there's all these different groups who are fighting. Who are they and what do they want? And calling them by their name. And so getting a much clearer picture of what was driving people to use violence. Who were the real hardcore jihadi Islamists? those who wanted to overthrow the state and replace it with a caliphate. And then who were the ones who were fighting for power in the new Iraq that could be brought into a political process and to sort of divide what we call the irreconcilables off from the reconcilables. And we started to talk to different fighters in different places. And in Ambar, there were tribes who really had had enough of Al-Qaeda and they thought that Al-Qaeda was taking the Sunnis to total defeat and were fearful for, you know, fearful of extermination. Al-Qaeda had taken too many of their daughters as wives. It would cut off fingers for smoking. It wouldn't allow cucumbers and tomatoes to be sold together. You know, some weird stuff. There was a guy called Sheikh Sitar Abu Risha who reached out to the local commander and said, look, we both hate Al-Qaeda. Let's work together. And so we started to see the Anbar awakening and we thought this is something that could really spread. And the coalition facilitated the spread of the Sunni awakening, what became known as Sons of the Iraq in English and the Sahwa in Arabic. 
And as the Sunnis turned against Al-Qaeda, they were stopping bombings and killings of the Shia population. And the Shia population that had turned to the Shia militias, like Jaish al-Mahdi from protection, no longer wanted the militias in their midst because the militias may protect them, but they also ran whole black markets, scams, and you know, living under the mafia. And the Iraqi security forces, the coalition worked alongside them. They called this operation Fadl Qanun, imposed the law. And as the Iraqi forces worked side by side with the coalition forces, this really built up their confidence, their proficiency, and their reputation in the eyes of the Iraqi population. And by about mid-2007, the violence dramatically dropped. And from then onwards, that phase of the civil war came to an end and all groups were brought into the political process. Can I ask, in terms of the military doctrine that came in with Petraeus, which, as I understand it, sort of had more of a focus on lessening civilian casualties, protecting the population and offering people dignity and justice, so very much improving the offer to Iraqi people and directly appealing in that way. Is that how you remember it? So at this period, the surge coincided with the release of the new US doctrine on counterinsurgency, manual FM 324, developed by General Petraeus. And so the whole approach during the surge was to focus on protecting the people from the insurgents. So previously, the focus had been on going after the insurgents, and there'd been a lot of collateral damage. By the time we get to 2007 and the surge, when Iraq is in the midst of a civil war, the focus now became on protecting the population from the insurgents. And this was when the US forces moved off their big bases to live among the Iraqi population and to protect them from the insurgents. They put all these T-walls up to create these gated T-walled communities and to control who could come in and out. The local population saw that the US military was protecting them. They would give them lots of information on who the insurgents were. And the US military could reach out to different armed groups and see if they could bring them into the political process. And those who were jihadi Islamist, who didn't want to be part of the political process, but wanted to create a caliphate, those were the ones who were then targeted. Those were thought of as the irreconcilables. So it was a new approach. Much was put into getting the support of the local population, being seen as the protectors of the local population from those forces that wanted to destroy the state of Iraq. You describe, Emma, a period of relative calm. So by the end of 2008, the US and Iraqi forces have um, have the initiative, the upper hand militarily. Security has really improved, as you describe. And there are some days in Iraq where there are no attacks at all in 2008. But this period of calm isn't sustainable and things change. Why do they change? Well, I think the period of calm could have been sustainable. All different groups have been brought into the political process. The violence was really, really low. Iraqis felt their civil war was ended. We felt it was ended. And then it all unraveled. In the 2010 elections, everybody turned out to vote. 
So people who had previously been insurgents ran as candidates, and a new coalition came together called Iraqia that ran on the platform to notice sectarianism, an Iraq for all Iraqis. And this coalition, much to everyone's surprise, went on to win the most seats in the election. It won 91 seats, as opposed to Nouri al-Maliki, the incumbent prime minister's, his state of law coalition, won 89 seats. Now, Nouri al-Maliki thought he was going to win massive victory because he was the one who was seen as bringing the civil war to an end. And he just couldn't believe the results. And he tried to change the results. He demanded a recount. And even though there was no evidence of mass fraud, the UN did a recount and the results stayed. And then he tried to disqualify members of Iraqia, accusing them of being Ba'athists. And this went on for months and months. So my boss, General Odierno, believed that the US should uphold the right of the winning bloc, Iraqia, to have first go at trying to form the government. But the US ambassador, he said, look, Iraq's not ready for democracy. Iraq needs a sheer strongman, and Maliki's our man. So these two different views were sent back to Washington. Now, back in Washington, President Obama appointed his vice president, Joe Biden, to be his point man on Iraq. I was somebody who met with him and was, you know, trying to explain to him the situation in Iraq. And he said, look, Maliki's our man. Maliki's an Iraqi nationalist, and Maliki will allow us to keep a contingent of US forces inside Iraq after 2011. So Biden took the decision that despite the election results, the US would put its weight behind Maliki to keep him in power as prime minister. Now, this was problematic for a number of reasons, not least because we were supposed to be there to promote democracy, but also because the political elites had grown very scared of Maliki. They feared that he was turning into another Saddam. And they had tried numerous times through the parliament to do a vote of no confidence against him. And each time they moved to replace him to a vote of no confidence, the US had intervened and said, look, the security situation is too precarious. If you really want to replace him, do it when they have national elections and do it as, you know, as the country votes. And so when it came to national elections and Iraqis voted for change, and then the Americans once again tried to stop change and keep the status quo, Iraqi politicians were very upset. Iraqia had a lot of people who had previously been in the insurgency and had convinced them that change could come about through politics, not through violence. And so voting for change and then Americans saying, oh no, keep Maliki, made them angrier and angrier. They kept saying it's our right to have first go at trying to form the government. We might not succeed, but we have to show our constituents that we have tried. And the Kurds were very scared of Maliki. So these groups just said, we're not going to go along with this. And this was when the Iranians stepped in. The Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani, who was a very talented and charismatic general, persuaded Muqtad al-Sadr, who was the leader of Jaysh al-Mahdi, a Shia militia, to keep Maliki on as prime minister. Muqtada hated Maliki, but the Iranians convinced Muqtada that Maliki would ensure that all US forces left Iraq in 2011 and that Muqtada, his guys, would get good seats in government. So once Muqtada was convinced of this, the Iranian 
general, Qasem Soleimani, invited other Iraqi politicians over and basically told them Maliki was going to stay in power and with the support of Muqtada. Maliki got his second term as prime minister, brokered by the Iranians, who wanted to keep Maliki in power for a very different reason from the Americans. The Iranians knew that Maliki would prevent Iraq from being integrated into the Arab world. And they knew that Maliki would insist on all US forces to leave the country. So after Maliki secured his post as prime minister for the second time, the first thing he did was accuse the Iraqi politicians of being terrorists and drove them out the country. He then reneged on the promises he had made to the Sahwa, the Sunni awakening. He went after their leaders. Some were assassinated, some were jailed, some were forced to flee the country. And he subverted the judicial system. And between 2011 to 2014, Maliki replaced those effective Iraqi military leaders who we believe were too close to the Americans, replaced them with people who he regarded as loyal to himself. And there became a politicization of the Iraqi security forces. There was much corruption. And there started to be protests across Iraq. This was sort of going into 2011 now, the time of the Arab Spring. And he sent in the Iraqi security forces into these protests and up in Hawija, 50 protesters were killed. So the protests were crushed. And what this did was create the conditions that allowed Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had been completely crushed during the awakening to reconstitute itself as the Islamic State, ISIS, proclaiming itself to be the defender of the Sunnis against the Iranian-backed sectarian regime of Nouriel Maliki. And by 2014, ISIS took over a third of Iraq and the Iraqi security forces collapsed. Could you tell us a bit more about the history of Islamic State in Iraq? What happened after 2014? So US forces had left Iraq in 2011. The security agreement had expired. So when ISIS took over Mosul and the Iraqi security forces who outnumbered ISIS by about 100 to 1, they weren't being fed. The officers had used the money that was supposed to buy food and ammunition, had just pocketed it. They weren't there with their troops. They didn't give orders to fight. You can trace the histories of some ISIS people who might have been in 2003, might have been secular, part of the Iraqi army could then have gone into the insurgency, would then have come out of the insurgency and into the Sunni awakening, and then joining ISIS. So you can look at people's allegiances changing back and forth. Thanks so much, Emma, for sharing your impressions as someone who is on the inside of this war and trying to help the military leaders to avoid costly mistakes. Reckoning with 9-11. As we researched this episode, we came across an interesting fact about the rise of Al-Qaeda and then ISIS in Iraq. The man who built Al-Qaeda in Iraq was Abu Musab al-Zakawi. He'd been a veteran of the Afghan Mujahideen and an admirer of Osama bin Laden. Al-Qaeda supported him to set up a group called Ansar al-Islam in the Kurdish part of Iraq near the Iran border. After the US invasion, Zarqawi asserted a vision of unflinching cruelty, which he himself termed the management of savagery. 
It was his strategy to drench the coalition in blood and to foment civil war. Famously bombed the Jordanian embassy and then forced the UN withdrawal by killing top UN diplomat Sergio de Mayo, then assassinating moderate Shia cleric Ayatollah Mohammed Bakir al-Hakim, and later bombing the Golden Mosque in Samarra. He also originated infamous and gruesome execution videos that then went viral around the world. Zarqawi laid the foundation of what would later become ISIS. So Zarqawi was the coalition's and pretty much everyone's worst nightmare. But the interesting fact about him is that before all this happened from mid-2002, Zarqawi's small al-Qaeda-backed group Ansar al-Islam was being watched by a CIA team of ex-Marines. They offered the White House a plan to take out the group, but Bush rejected it. Firstly, because holding a mini-operation like this on Iraqi soil might disrupt plans for the coming invasion and the removal of Saddam. Secondly, because it was convenient for Colin Powell to be able to point to some al-Qaeda presence in Iraq in his famous February 2003 speech, making the case for war to the UN Security Council. We know that it is easy to point fingers in hindsight, but this really does illustrate how Bush's drive to broaden the war on terror, instead of focusing more specifically on al-Qaeda, led then to problems. Now, our interview with Emma Skye has given us a great insight into how things unraveled from the perspective of those who were trying to stabilize Iraq. But what we still need to understand better is the impact of all this on Iraqis and how things evolved with the rise of ISIS as well. So joining us to discuss this is Renad Mansour, who is a senior research fellow and project director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. Renad, the US and the UK launched this war in the name of fighting terrorism, in the name of expanding freedom, but it ultimately inflicted extraordinary trauma on the Iraqi people. Can you try to explain the impact these two decades have had on Iraq's people? The impact is clear when you travel around Iraq, from Basra to Baghdad to Kurdistan, almost all over the country. People do not feel that the you know the post two thousand and three political system has really represented them or responded to their basic needs. Instead, what they've seen is cycles of conflict. You know, uh, U.S. President George W. Bush announced mission accomplished five weeks after the invasion. Every other U.S. president has, in varying extents, announced some kind of mission accomplished. But what has never happened since 2003 is the political or the socioeconomic solutions, a political system that's, that's based on identities and sectarian and, and, and ethnicities that does not represent the people has proliferated. And at the end of the day, uh, this has hurt people. Corruption is one of the biggest outcomes of the so-called democracy project. And I'll give you an example. This past summer, over 100 people have died just in hospital, two hospital fires, one in Nasiriyah, one in Baghdad. The hospitals didn't even have fire extinguishers. The, the cladding on the walls were, were, were flammable. They weren't good quality. This is a country that has hundreds of billions of, of, of dollars none of which has been spent on the very basics. And so 
those killed in the hospital fire show you, the, you know, the, the, the impact and that corruption, that uh, reliance on oil, that the politics of 2003 can have in killing Iraqi people. The root of the problem, these political roots have never been addressed. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting trying to get into the, the mindset of the military-led invasion and how little that was attuned to these questions about how Iraqis actually felt about the arrival of the invasion and the liberation of Iraq. From 2004 to 2007, Iraq got very violent. There was a lot of sectarian killing a lot of resistance on all sides to the occupation. Could you tell us a little bit more about how the coalition's military efforts were seen at this time sort of by Iraqis? Yeah, many Iraqis in 2003, if you recall, celebrated the invasion. But what happened next was a big surprise for them. Iraq was often defined as regime change, but it wasn't regime change. Regime change would have just removed the upper echelons of the, the Saddam Hussein regime and, and, and kept the state. What you had was a wholesale destruction of the state. The two CPA orders, one, to remove the entire military from service, two, to remove the top three or four layers of the civil service from work. They removed all of this, and instead they, the, the political parties put in their, their patronage networks. This destroyed the state today we're still feeling the effects of this problem. Iraqis began to realize, wait a minute, what's going on here? We're seeing looting. There's no security. The borders are open. The prisons are open. The, the basic services of the ministries, the civil servants are not allowed to work. Some of them are in jail. The universities, the deans are gone. I mean, the, everything fell apart. Iraqis began to realize that this was a destructive force not a force to, to help them that had, was coming in. And the second big thing was this idea that the way to solve Iraq was to create what's known as a kind of elite pact. If you bring Shia parties, Sunni parties, and Kurdish parties together, you can have them cre you know, create an ethno-sectarian-based system, political system that could represent the all sides. Those political parties increasingly didn't represent the street. Many of the leaders, they came to Baghdad, they, they, they stayed in the green zone. They didn't even know the names of the streets, of the, of, the, of the areas that they were supposed to now be representing, let alone the people there. And so the emphasis on sectarianism, the emphasis on identity in politics created the, the grounds for the sectarian civil wars and the grounds for, for politics and, and violence based on identity, which is known in, in Iraq as muhasasa, the quota-based system. And today, Iraqis, their number one grievance is at that, against that system itself. Yeah, let's just talk a little bit about the, the violence and abuse of the occupation as well, because obviously there was a lot of violence on all sides, but as things deteriorated, security rise, they could do less for the population, but they also had to fight quite hard to hold on. And then you had the revelations about abuses at Abu Ghraib and the resentment from the levels of violence that Iraqis were seeing from the coalition. Yes, of course. And it became clear that the, you know, these, these forces, these troops that were now 
controlling Iraq, patrolling Iraq uh, at checkpoints, sometimes killing civilians by accident, not being able to speak the language of the Iraqis, yet being the social policing. I mean, there are all, all sorts of problems that erupted with the violence. And so, yes, Iraq, you know, Iraqis began to be, you know, see what was happening. There was an occupation of their country by a foreign military, the Americans, and a military that really didn't know how to deal with the political or social or economic problems, but only knew how to use brunt force, right? That's what a military does. And so airstrikes, checkpoints, there was a securitization of Iraqi society even more, but from a foreign outlet in this instance. And so, yes, they became violent. And then there was, of course, the emergence of resistance groups, whether they were groups like Al-Qaeda and others, you know, that would become the Islamic State that came down from the north to fight against the occupation, or Shia sort of militia groups that emerged, primarily the, the Mahdi army led by Muqtada al-Sadr, that emerged to fight off the Americans against. And, and Iraqis were stuck now between groups fighting each other. Mm -hmm. We haven't touched so much on the rise of Islamic State or Daesh um, and how this brought about a second round of war on terror to Iraq and to Syria. Can you talk us through what you see as some of the important factors why the Islamic State arose and was quickly able to establish control over so much of Iraq? Sure. After the, the U.S. invasion, what you see is a network of fighters led at the time by Zarqawi, uh, who saw an opportunity in Iraq to fight against the Americans. So after uh, you know what was known as the Islamic State of Iraq, which was somewhat in, in very loosely linked to Al-Qaeda, was defeated in the first civil war. But again, that was just a military defeat. No one addressed the political and socioeconomic reasons why this group had, had emerged. And because of that, it was able to go underground. It was a very fluid and dynamic network. And then in Syria, as well as eventually in Iraq, it was able to rise back up because of political mistakes. If you look at, for example, President Obama's decision to back Nouri al-Maliki for a second term, something that you know Joe Biden, who is now the, the president, really supported. And in that second term, Nouri al-Maliki would be, begin a centralization of power that was sectarian, that really uh, went against many of the Sunni leaders and constituencies and the use of violence. So, you know, Iraq in 2011-12 had to some extent protests that some could link to the Arab uprisings more generally. They were silenced by brute force. Many in those areas of Mosul, Ambar, where, where the Islamic State would eventually emerge, used to call the Iraqi army Jaysh al-Maliki, Maliki's army. So I think that the failures to create a system that could represent the inhabitants of that land led to the rise of Islamic State. If you go to Mosul or Ambar, the areas that, you know, sadly were under Islamic State for years, these, it wasn't a fight. They just emerged. They, they came with their cars and maybe a day or two, they took over almost a third of Iraq uh, without, without contestation as the, the, the failed army of Iraq retreated. Really, the rise of these groups isn't necessarily a military rise. It's, a, it, it's the failure of the political system. And so the solution cannot be a military solution. And so today, 
what we've seen is, you know, the whole world came together, the U.S. coalition, Iran, everyone fighting against a few thousand Islamic State soldiers. It was easy to defeat them militarily. But the question is, where is the political solution? Where is the social solution? You have so many people who still haven't returned to their homes. You have people, you know, you have children who are denied citizenship because, you know, let's say their father was part of the organization. Anyway, there's so many social problems in these areas, so many armed groups. I think that Iraq is still on the cycles of conflict that we've seen since 2003. And after the taking of Mosul and Anbar, what was the situation for the people living in those areas in this phase of the war? Of course, we, we, it's very well known that the, the living under the Islamic State was a very brutal regime. There was this fear, which led the people who lived under Islamic State to celebrate the reemergence of the Iraqi army and celebrate liberation. The first election after liberation in 2018 Many Iraqis didn't go to vote, but one of the areas that had the highest voter turnout in the whole country was Mosul, because they were just so, you know, done with what had they'd gone through and wanted to be part of the Iraqi system. So there was this sense of hope immediately after, hope that maybe their government could actually support them. If you go to those areas today and speak to the same people, they'll tell you a similar thing, which is from the day of liberation, which is a few years ago now, to today, we still have not seen our government. We have not seen any of the promises. The, the schools aren't rebuilt. The, the services aren't functioning. After all this time, people are able to mobilize for the invasion, for the fight against al-Qaeda in Iraq, for the fight against Islamic State. But they still haven't really mobilized to respond to the actual needs of Iraqi people and to resolve some of the core issues in Iraq and the risks for instability in the future. How do you see the prospects for peace and justice for Iraqi people looking forward from now? I mean, to me, uh, it, it's hard to see, uh, you know, favorable or, or bright prospects for, for peace and justice. The biggest hope that I see is actually in, in the, the youth who are really fighting for a different future. Two thirds of Iraqis are under the age of, of 25. Many of them have basically said enough is enough. And we've seen since October 2019, mass protests in Baghdad and much of the South. We've also seen at times protests in the Kurdistan areas against their own leaders. And the common thread across is that these Iraqis aren't against a specific leader. What they're against is the entire political system set up since 2003. However, the elite, the leaders who have been ruling Iraq since 2003 have recognized the threat of these protests. They call it a revolution and have embarked on a campaign of repression. It is much more dangerous in Baghdad today and parts of southern Iraq today than it was a few years ago to have open voice. Activists are being targeted, jailed, assassinated. Protesters have been shot in, in squares. What we're seeing is a clash between citizens who have nothing and an elite 
who is struggling to maintain the political system that was put on Iraq since 2003. The prospects are not good for peace and justice for the Iraqi people. That's very challenging. I mean, are there things that outsiders who wish Iraq well could be doing now to support a better future and to influence those with power to respond better to this public appetite for more justice, better governance? That's a difficult but very important question. To date, there hasn't really been many success stories. Iraqis don't feel like they have a voice. The only place they think they have a voice is in the, the protest squares. And as I say, those have become very dangerous areas. In terms of the role of outside actors, if there is any that could be constructive, it has to be you know, figuring out ways to make the system accountable to the people. Not just bringing political leaders together, not doing dialogue between Shia, Sunni, Kurds, not viewing the problem at all in ethno or sectarian terms, but viewing the problem as a divide between a leadership and its people, its governance, its accountability, uh, its corruption that are the problems. And more often than not, international actors feed into the problems. So the first step has to be stepping back, recognizing the networks of power that dominate the state and how to ensure accountability rather than feed into the system in, in ways that would continue to, to harm Iraqis. Something we've seen in our studies of stabilization in, in many places is how little attention seems to be paid to sort of nourishing and supporting civil society and local groups, youth groups to find their feet and to keep operating and keep asking questions of leaders. Would you say that's fair? The biggest problem in this work, you know, from outsiders is understanding the, the, the context in Iraq and, and the social groups at work. One of the jokes at the time was Nuri al-Maliki had set up his own civil society organizations that were getting funding from abroad, even though he was prime minister and, and these were part of his political platform. We've seen that either they focus on very local things, you know, build a school here, support an organization here, or they focus on very technical things, but they don't want to engage in the politics behind it. But the problem is outsiders don't have a mapping of the social forces and social power at work. I think the biggest problem is they just don't know where which groups speak on behalf of independent voices. So moving forward, number one recommendation is to A, understand the networks of power, understand the who is who, you know, before then going on to put millions of dollars into the platforms of different groups. And I think that needs to be had, had done first and then supporting civil society, which of course is an important uh, endeavor. If you think about it, the outsiders, many of them, they kind of live in the green zone. They live in a very fortified area. Some of them don't, but they're still very fortified. Their interactions with Iraqis is very minimal. And yet these are the ones who are meant to be supporting programs that could help the Iraqis. So I think there's a fundamental problem in the idea of international state building, of the idea of that, that outsiders can, can understand very nuanced, very complicated societies in Iraq or elsewhere. I think in a way that's almost the genius of 
you know, figures like Zarqawi, that he really put the occupiers of Iraq into bunkers and behind checkpoints and separated them so much from the population because security got so bad. Let me just ask you what you think the key lessons are for the likes of the US and the UK looking back on their role in destabilizing Iraq. Sure. In 2003, I think more people thought that a global superpower like the US and its allies like the the UK and, and other European governments could very easily change Iraq from uh, a dictatorship to a democracy that could develop in a very short time span with a very minimal uh, military effort, with very, very minimal investment. And I think today, looking back, it's clear that the you know no superpower can go into a country like Iraq and try and fundamentally change its social system and its state system quickly uh, or effectively. Um, and instead, actually, the chances are that you create more problems. One of the most disturbing and distressing things is the amount of Iraqis who want Saddam to return. And I think that, to me, is a lesson in how wrong international intervention can go when it comes to the US and the UK. And another important lesson uh, is when we are telling the story of Iraq, if you go back to the newspapers during the war, much of it was the, the stories of the politicians speaking, listening to the, to, to the US leaders or UK leaders or Iraqi leaders who are, had come back. Very few people actually had the voices of Iraqis themselves. We worked on this documentary last year for the BBC called Once Upon a Time in Iraq. And one of the reasons it did well is because we decided not to have the voices of politicians. We wanted people in the UK, in the US, outside to hear the voices of the, those Iraqis who had been impacted by the war. Thank you, Renad. Reckoning with 9-11. Delina, reflecting on what we heard from Emma and Renad, what are some of the things we need to pull out and sort of reflect on as the sort of key issues about the war on terror as it unfolded in Iraq? I suppose the overarching umbrella would be how an invasion and then the violent occupation ended up catalyzing successive and explosive rounds of violence something that was very eloquently mentioned by Renad was this idea of the failure to deliver a better social offer, a better governance model after toppling Saddam, and then ended up feeding a breakdown into the living conditions of Iraqi people. I agree. And another thing that sort of feels really important to me here is how this kind of hunger to get to stability and to have an exit strategy led the US to support what turned out to be the wrong partner um, in Nouri al-Maliki. Mm -hmm. So helping him after he'd lost an election to remain in control turned out to be, you know, the driver of a lot of the problems down the road. And when you make terrorism the main issue and look for a strong partner, it underpins a lot of the problems that have beset the war on terrorism in different countries. 
Mm-hmm. And also imagining a state following the Western model, thinking that Iraq has to resemble a state as we imagine it. This is very problematic and then ends up enabling violent groups that offer a different social version of reality to emerge and to thrive. Yeah, I agree. It really feels like a humbling experience looking at Iraq, particularly in these times when we're looking at developments as well in Afghanistan. Yeah. It feels like that point that Renard made about how hard it is to change the way things work, the political order. I think Bush and Rumsfeld thought that could be quickly transformed. The question for me, thinking as more of an optimist, is whether in future people should focus on trying to find more middle paths that are, you know, different to either attempting wholesale regime change by military force, but also different from just resignation and letting abusive and corrupt rulers have their way. And it seems to me that that would be much more about supporting people in other societies to find their feet and have their say than it would be about picking and choosing which elites and security forces to back and to train and equip. I am Delina Gojo. And I'm Larry Atri. Thank you for listening. This special Warpod series, Reckoning with 9-11, is brought to you by Safer World, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It is produced by the podcast company, Next time on The Reckoning, we head to Yemen and Somalia as we explore the story of how two more post-9-11 counter-terrorism battlegrounds became caught up in endless war. Listen, follow, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org, produced in cooperation with Safer World.